Today, I talk fitness, diet, and overall health and wellness with Jordan Tuimawaluga, CEO and founder of the 5A Protocol. Some topics discussed include fasting, workouts, genetics, calories in versus calories out, quality of foods, rest and recovery, veganism, the obesity epidemic, and much more. You can be the richest person in the world, famous, and have everything you desire, but if you don't have your health, it can all be taken away from you in the blink of an eye. Take care of yourself, folks. Health is number one. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Jordan Tui Mawaluna. Is that, is that how you say it? Yeah, you got it. Cool. Where's that from? My dad's from Samoa, Western Samoa. My nice. mom, people are looking. I'm half as big as I should be, so she's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you're still in great shape. You could see you got the genes. You've got the Samoan genes. It helps. Um, so thank you for coming on. We're going to be talking a lot about health and wellness and fitness today. Can you start off just by giving people a little background what you're currently doing, where you went to school, what your specialties are in the health and wellness field? Yeah, sure thing. So I think, you know, growing up, I've always been an athlete. I played basketball, volleyball all throughout high school, played a million sports growing up. So it's always kind of been in my nature. Um, never plan on doing it as an actual career though. So, but I did always have side jobs. So I worked for Gold's Gym and worked my way up, you know, as a master trainer and worked at Orange Theory for a number of years. Worked at other private gyms for a while. People probably don't know the names of. Um, and then all while I was going to school, eventually graduated graduated from UCLA in economics. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to be doing banking. But while I was at school at UCLA, I decided to start an online business. Something that I recognized was when I was in person, I was able to help people for about one hour of their day. But what about the other 23? <laughs> I felt like there was just a lot of holes, things that were missing that I couldn't do in person, but I wanted to be able to help somebody for the whole course of their day. Um, and then I also realized at that point too, that I really love working with business owners and entrepreneurs, right? They have a different lifestyle. So that's when I really focused on that full time, decided banking wasn't for me and have been running my online company ever since. Sweet. So is it all online training? There's no in-person right now? All online training. Yep. Interesting. Cool. So you can fit in with their schedules. Exactly. And other than economics, do you have any credentials under health and wellness or any of that? Or just yeah. kind of self-read? And Yeah. I mean, obviously, the best type of experience is working with lots of people. But I also got my certification through the National Academy of Sports Medicine Um and a number of other certifications. When you're working for a gym, they have you go through different certifications for their gym just to stay up to date on stuff. So cool. I've been in it for five, six years now. Nice. So off the bat, if if someone's looking for your services, what are the first elements, the combination of working out, uh, diet, what, what are the most important things that you kind of emphasize off the bat and start someone's programming? Yeah. So my system, my method, I call it the 5A protocol. So there's five pillars that somebody needs to have or go through in order to be successful. And I basically teach them how to run their body like a business. And because they're business owners, they get it. So the first thing that we would do in pillar one is what I call rival. They really wanna know like, where is it you wanna go? Because if you've ever used Apple Maps or Google Maps and you don't put in an end destination, you're never gonna get any directions, right? So that would be the first thing is I would say so, 
where do you want to end up? Are you looking to lose body fat in a certain number of areas? Are you trying to build strength, build muscle? Like, what is the end goal? How can we measure it? So that would probably be step one is, what do you want? So if someone wants to be a certain leanness or bulk, mm-hmm. that's what you, that's where you would start. Yeah, exactly. We got to figure out what that is. Like, okay, so you want to lose, maybe right now we do some measurements and different things and it looks like you're at 30% body fat. The ideal in your mind where you're feeling healthy, maximal energy and looking the way that you want to would be at 12%, right? So we know we need to lose 18%. Then based on my client's experiences, pretty much every six months, they lose about six to 7% body fat. So then there's the timeline reverse engineered down to weekly goals and at that point, just get simple. It really is just like a business. <laughs> just That's a good way to put it. Up. And I've heard you talk about calories in, calories out is a big part of your programming and treating it like a business and applying that to entrepreneurs and business owners. I mean, they can kind of correlate it pretty quick. Yeah. So you said 12% for males. Is that the ideal goal that you like to stick to? Or if someone says they want to get, <laughs> let's say, 6 7 8% shredded, do you still cater towards them or will you encourage them to like actually that's that's a little low like you're not competing you're not getting on stage if someone wanted to do six percent what would you say i mean i would just say you got to find the balance between how you like to look and how you like to live right whatever that balance is if for you it's six percent then by all means do it what i found is that's really uncomfortable it doesn't allow you to really eat out or enjoy meals with your family it doesn't allow allow you to let loose the flexibility that you have when you're walking around at six percent is little you might have be able to go over your calorie protein number once a month and if you're happy with that then great most people business owners that's not for them (laughs) that's crazy so really it's once a month if you're that lean you have to be strict for, let's say, two, three, four months leading up to competition. Yeah, I mean, you, you measure it, right? You're going to see your, your progress. But yeah, the, the amount of flexibility you have, the leaner you get, decreases more and more as you, like, if you want to go 6%. I mean, there's a limit, too, because sometimes people think, oh, I want to be as shredded as you see maybe some of those bodybuilding competitions, but they don't realize those bodybuilders, they hate their life. They can't sleep. (laughs) Everything hurts. They can't recover. They're always hungry. No matter how much they eat, they're always hungry because their body just doesn't naturally want to be there. Right. So um, if somebody that's their ideal, I will get them there. I just always let them know that up front. Like, okay, we can do it, but you're not going to have a lot of flexibility. It's going to require a lot of time. And, um, And that's the notion, too, on Instagram when we see all of these really incredible looking people or even on magazines. And we kind of program that in our heads to where that's the ideal. We're supposed to look like that. But what you just said is a lot of those those people with those types of physiques that are absolutely incredible. That's not only unrealistic for most people. It might not even be what's optimal or the healthiest for your body. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, what do you value more? Uh, Being super strict and looking as shredded as possible or being able to eat at your kid's birthday party a piece of cake? You know, for me, the kid's birthday party, you know, being a part of those experiences, so much more important and developing a healthier relationship with food and being able to eat out when I need to if I'm on the run. That's so much more valuable than trying to be as lean as I possibly could ever be. And not becoming a slave to each meal and having to worry about it. But even if you remove, let's say, the birthday party and wanting to splurge once in a while, getting to that 
look and leanness just biologically is probably not the best for you. Like our, maybe you could speak to it more. Our body stores fat to kind of protect ourselves and give a cushion if we're not going to be um, getting a lot of calorie, like a big surplus in, in the future. So your body's doing that on purpose. And let's say when, when you're getting super lean and then you have, I, I want to ask you directly. So the cheat meals, because earlier we were saying one or two meals, if you're that lean might throw you out of whack. But then I've seen it's common practice where even people that are really shredded will have one meal or one day a week where it's just a huge calorie surplus. They get all vascular, they get all <laughs> swollen, but it doesn't really put on long-term fat. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. I, I mean, at least the way that I break it down, because I just want to focus on like what's most simple, right? And it just comes down to total calories, total protein in a given day when it comes to fat loss. That's it. And if you can fit in brownies, and my clients always do, they eat out five plus times a week, they're eating dessert every single night. If you, as long as you can hit those targets, you're going to see progress. It's, it's really that simple. So I don't really subscribe to the cheat day, cheat meal mentality, because I just don't think it's necessary. But those people that are doing that, you might think of it as um, on average, they need to hit 2,300 calories to lose one pound in a week. That's their target, right? So during the week, they're doing 1,600 calories. Then they have one huge day of 5,000. But if you average it out, it's still going to be roughly the same of the 2,300. They still see progress. I was under the impression that they're doing it for some sort of biological reason where it dumps fat in some way because you're so restricted. Let's So it's not even necessarily, this is my understanding, counting calories, let's say, to the end of the week. But some sort of mechanism where you dump heavy calories in, sometimes like really sloppy calories, not the, the best quality, and they wake up almost leaner because it dumped in some sort of way. Is that even possible? To, if yeah. you, you know? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So, I mean, so there's different circumstances that we can look at it in. If somebody's getting ready for like a bodybuilding competition, then a lot of times they're going through like a depletion period where they have really low carbohydrates and when you have low carbs typically your muscles look very flat they don't have that fullness and so leading into the competition pretty much after weigh-in they're piling carbs in there because carbs hold more water more water means your muscles are going to expand more give you more of that look that they're going for and so that's a lot of the reason why typically they would do that there's another aspect of it too where Whenever you're cutting calories, your body goes through metabolic adaptation. It just means your body gets used to this new number of calories that you're eating. And so if you're overly restricted for too long, let's say you're doing 1,500 calories, eventually you'll plateau at 1,500. And even though it was working before, it doesn't work anymore. And so in those circumstances, you have to make certain adjustments to get your metabolism used to you know, making Interesting. progress. Just to kind of keep it in shock yeah. so it doesn't adjust to that. That yeah, depletion entirely. Of yep, exactly. You spoke earlier of clients sometimes enjoying brownies. And I know like your programming in particular is adjusting to their lifestyles. So if, if they are giving you feedback that they would like brownies incorporated and whatnot, and then you're able to just measure in terms of are you meeting your caloric intake? I'm curious your opinion on the quality of calories. So you'll have sometimes people like, oh, I didn't. I haven't eaten anything today, but I, I got to meet 2,000, let's say, 
I can go have a bunch of pizza now. And I'm, I met my calorie. I met my caloric intake, right? Yeah. Um, what do you think about the quality of foods, eating whole foods, and not even just that, but a step further in organic versus non-organic? Do you ever advise your clients on those options? Yeah, you know, I think there's always levels to it. And an entrepreneur, business owners, um, what is it? Their normal response is all or nothing. Either nothing, where they're eating McDonald's seven days a week and they don't even think about what they're ordering, or they're all in and they won't even touch sugar, right? And what I try to get them away from is that all or nothing mentality. So maybe this is their ideal, is this no sugar, and I don't opt for it because I just don't think it's sustainable. And as long as we're moving in this direction, then I think it makes a lot of sense. So typically, I start people off with quantity. When it comes to fat loss, it really is total calories, total protein, as long as you're hitting those two things and you're in a calorie deficit and you have enough protein, you're going to lose fat and you're going to at least be able to preserve your muscle. Like it's just, <laughs> I've seen it I've probably worked with over 200 people and it's always the same. But then when it comes to actual energy, when it comes to not struggling with hunger, when it comes to some of those other aspects, health, immune system, that's where quality comes into play. Um, so typically I will help them really nail quantity and focus on quality kind of a bit later. Got it. So it's easier to stick to in your initial programming, let's say if it's simple and you're not getting into the very micro details and organic, the inorganic. And I think about that kind of stuff, though, with when your cells are replicating, when you're building muscle, the your brain functioning, the quality of the fuel like what gasoline are you putting in your car? Because if you're, if you're only measuring calories sometimes, I think even though in the beginning it could, it could be a benefit if you are just trying to lose fat and that's your ultimate goal, which a lot of people, that's all they want, right? They don't want all the micro details and stuff. Yeah. But I do think it's important for people to educate themselves on the qualities of fuel. And that plays into, let's say, long-term health. Because you can have someone that, looks super shredded and they might not be so healthy on the inside and that was another question i wanted to pose to you is the the difference between feeling good and actually having healthy insides so if if you're meeting your goals and let's say if a cheeseburger makes you feel happy it's usually not going to right like your body knows it's going to respond to proper nutrition whole foods and whatnot but I I think sometimes people they actually think they're they're putting good stuff into their bodies because they like fe feel well and their body's adjusted to whatever type of energy sources they're throwing at it. And the idea of just taking it back, simplifying it to whole foods, like locking down your protein sources, um, your carb sources, your vegetables, your fiber, all of that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to hear about your programming with like diet and whatnot, do you advise white rice, brown rice, sweet potato, regular potato for meats, salmon, chicken? Is it white meat chicken? Is it dark meat chicken? Uh, your opinion on like steaks and fatty meats and stuff like that? Because personally, I eat a lot of fatty meats, like satiating foods, uh, a lot of red meat, a lot of red meats that doctors would probably advise me not to have so much of 
But I have just found personally that my energy and the way I feel, let's say spinach, red meat, and white rice, just that combination trickled throughout the week is like a steady energy source, which makes me feel good. So to bring it back to my question is even though I'm eating red meat, white rice, and veggies, and it feels good, is that actually optimal? Is that healthy for my insides? Yeah, you know, I think what a lot of people, so I guess it goes back to that first pillar that I talked about, right? Which is making sure you understand what is it that you're actually after? What is it, where do you wanna actually arrive to? And most of the clients that I'm talking about, they wanna lose the fat, they wanna, you know, look more confident in a suit, have more confidence in their sales and their business in their marriages, et cetera, and be able to keep it off. And so when it comes to that, there's the simple math of calories and protein and all that good stuff. And then there's the other psychological side, which is, well, do you actually enjoy what you're eating? Right. (laughs) And then a lot of times when people are saying foods are healthy or not healthy, I'm always asking them, well, what does that even mean? How do, you, how do you define healthy? Yeah, that's what I want to ask you. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think it's different for every single person because, um, I mean, there's some of the obvious ones, but in my opinion, I think it's good to be able to have indulgent sugary foods at times. Other people will say, hey, sugar causes cancer. But for me, maybe it's, like I said, it's polarizing, but I think it's okay because that's part of balance. It's part of enjoying life. To me, Someone that cuts themselves out from all sugar is typically going to have a lower quality of enjoyment in life. <laughs> like that's just. Are we talking like fruit sugar, or ice cream, I'm or talking cakes? Everything? Ice cream, cake. I'm talking all desserts of all mm-hmm. kind. I think going on the extreme and cutting all that out is just like somebody who goes all extreme on their business, who neglects their family relationships who neglects their friends, who just goes all in 100%. You'll never see them. All they do every day is business. They're going to be really successful at business, just like person that did that would be really successful in their body. But at what cost? And to me, I think those things have to be taken into consideration. Like, do you enjoy what you're eating? How does it actually make you feel? Can you keep this up? Because a lot of times people are like, okay, this is what's optimal, but what's realistic? And I think that that's where a lot of people fall short is, well, what's optimal in the studies isn't actually realistic for you. And a lot of times when they run those studies, it's a control group of what, 50 people and everyone's different individually. So to say that this is the only healthy way of doing it, I I don't prescribe to that mentality. Got it. (laughs) No, there's, there's definitely so many ways to do it right. And even if a study produces a result that biologically deductively could say this is what's optimal for you as a human that is way different than what you speak to of being realistic but nonetheless that's still a human's discipline placating to the sugar the enjoyments of life rather than being a robot and doing only what's good for you 24 7 right but let's say someone isn't into sweets personally i've never really been a sweet eater as i've gotten older my taste buds are acquiring it a little bit more, but even growing up and I was a real chubby kid, um, it was from fats and carbs. It was not from sugary like substances, not that source, but just a lot of other foods. Uh, what kind of cheat meals or foods would you advise or 
give someone the leeway to do in your program that didn't want sweets? Any, anything. Anything? No, nothing's off limits. As long as they're meeting the calories in, calories out goal. Yeah, because at the end of the day, and again, it comes back. That's why the first pillar I drive so hard is like, well, what is it that you really want? If it is really just this body fat percentage, increase injury, energy, and then keeping it off, you don't need to cut everything out to do that. Mm. You can, but you don't need to do it. So for the energy part, would you advise someone, though? Because isn't it true that your, your energy levels throughout the day are sometimes dictated by that glucose dump and like having too much sugar might give you a kind of volatile energy state? When if someone did want to go steady, you could advise cleaner foods, maybe not the sugar dump. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of energy, if that was one of their goals, that would be something that we would look at. But then again, it's also individual. Like it's it's taking the time. So again, entrepreneurs, business owners, we're always on the move. We're always eating like on the go, sometimes in our cars, some, you know, just never thinking about our food. And so a lot of the program sometimes is like, so how'd that make you feel? Did you have energy after the meal? You just said for you, red meat, spinach, rice gives you energy. To me, I keep the meal. It's a great meal. If you are, you know, going to your regular checkups and your doctor saying, hey, your cholesterol is getting high or we should cut the red meat down a little bit. Okay. You know, most people recommend red meat, what, two to three times a week, mm -hmm. one to two times a week. I'm always helping my clients try to choose the leanest version of that red meat. So instead of the 70% fat or 70% lean, 30% fat ground beef, they can go for the 99% one, yeah. right? So those differences are important. But I just think that so many times we always go after all these studies, but every single person is different. And it's important to take time to understand what works for you is going to be different than what works for me. For sure. I ran a little experiment on myself with that to where I had red meat twice a day for 30 days. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my blood was totally normal, healthy. Like I, I literally went and got the blood worked out on purpose. Did it tell the doctor what I was doing? Got the test results back and just like, yeah, everything, everything's good. And that, that's a whole nother thing I want to maybe get into later is I th the variation in what is good for you diet wise, I think is really dictated a lot by your genes. Um, but but we'll, we'll get into that. So I've, I've heard you talk about meeting protein goals and fat goals. What do you think the difference for energy, um, fat versus carbs as an energy source? Because I, I do hear a lot of people talking about restricting fat, restricting fat. But I don't know if that's necessarily good for you, like your joint health, your, your brain health. I know a lot of studies that came out in, like, I believe the 60s were put forth by sugar companies like Coca-Cola spinoffs and legs manipulating data and whatnot to show that fat is what's giving you a heart attack. Um, and, and not sugar, not processed carbs, but red meats and fats, that's what's killing you. Stay away from that. And we had entire generations of people. I don't know if you've heard your parents speak to it. I definitely remember it growing up, people speaking to, oh, l less red meat. You know, like you're eating too much fat, eat uh, low fat milk, all these different items where the new research shows that fat isn't so bad for you, right? Fat's not so harmful. 
Yeah, fat. I mean, for me, what I'm always recommending my clients, the minimum for fat is about 20% of the total calories we're aiming for. And fat, in addition to the things you talked about, it's really, really key for hormones, Mm -hmm. for hormonal control, right? And if you cut fat, just have someone try it, experiment. Cut out all the fat from your diet, and you will notice that... Feel like you, shit. You will not feel well. Yeah, <laughs> you you will have some serious issues hormonally. Things will be off. You might find yourself gaining weight in weird places. You might find yourself weaker a lot of times. It's because of the hormonal shift that takes place in fat. So while I don't advocate lots of fat for my clients, simply because it's very low volume, right? So like you know this little bit of nuts, quarter cup, 190 calories. You know that's just not. That's not going to fill somebody up. Yeah. So I think for me, I always recommend they hit their minimum threshold, 20% of their total calories, which is really easy to get, and then focus on those bigger volume type foods that are low calorie, high volume, so you don't feel like you're starving yourself. And is that the meeting macros, and is that what people, when they're referencing meeting your macros, is? can you describe that a little bit more? When you say meeting your macros, you mean? Like in, in diet and whatnot, when you're talking about protein consumption and fats and carbs, isn't yeah. that when people are speaking to like meet your macros? And yeah, micros exactly. And yeah, macronutrients. I mean, so calories, they're broken down into three categories. They're going to be protein, carbohydrates, or fats. That's it. So if you have 100 calories of something, you can turn over on the nutrition and you'll see how it's kind of broken down into those three categories. And then each of those macronutrients, proteins, carbs, and fats, have different benefits for your body. So like somebody struggling with energy, I would look at their carbohydrate intake because that's your main source of energy, most people, unless doing keto and that's a whole nother (laughs) topic there. But yeah, if you start to cut out carbohydrates, you'll start to feel foggy in your head. You'll start to have less energy. You'll notice that your muscles, they look more and more depleted, right? That's a, those are side effects of carbohydrate of not having enough of them. Fats, we talked about hormones and then protein. I mean, that's the only way you can preserve your muscle. It sends literal signals to your brain telling you that you're full or give you those satiation effects, which if the whole goal, a lot of times people are overeating calories and there's a literal macronutrient that makes you feel full, you want to take advantage of that, right? Preserve your muscle and it would, has, that, sorry, would that one be protein you're referencing? Protein. Okay. Yeah. Protein is the one that literally sends, and fiber does as well, but protein literally sends signals to your brain telling you you're full, creating the satiating effect. Just have someone try it. Eat, eat a chicken breast, eat a cup of rice, make sure they're the same calories. I guarantee you're going to feel more full after the chicken breast. It's because of the protein that's in it. And then the last thing about protein, and this is why I opt um, advocate for it, is it has what's called the highest thermic effect of food, which just means when you eat it, it requires the most energy to digest. So if I ate 100 calories of protein, 15 to 20% of those are going to be burned off in the digestion process alone. Interesting. Carbs and fats, 5 to 10%. So I'm ready to doubling how many cal- calories are burned by just oh. eating protein. So you take advantage of those three things. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a big advocate of high protein type diet. Nice. I've never heard that put in terms of proteins and animal meats and whatnot. Only the, I think the celery example where people say you can go into a deficit <laughs> just because the process of breaking down the celery takes more less. than, 
it's more calories to break it down than what's actually in the celery itself. So yeah. 15 to 20 percent, you said, of 15. protein. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's called the thermic effect of food, right? How cool. many calories you burn in the digestion process. So speaking of keto, do you ever have people that come up, come to you and want keto advice? Uh, yeah, all the time. And usually, though, they've tried it three, four, five times and it never stick to it. So for me, all diets are exactly the same. If you think about it, keto is just like intermittent fasting. It's just like whole foods. If you're losing body fat from them, it just comes down to you have less calories than you're burning and you have adequate protein typically. Think about it. Keto cuts out carbohydrates. There goes lower calories than you're used to eating. Intermittent fasting makes you eat in a smaller window. Therefore, lower calories than you're eating. And Whole30, you're eating whole foods, which have less calories than processed foods typically. That's all it comes down to. So if someone wants to do keto, they can. I just make sure that they feel like they can keep it up long-term, and most don't. Got it. So, so you're saying that the constant amongst all those different diets is the fact that there's a calorie deficit. And if your goal is to lose mass and fat, that's the constant between all of them. Yeah. But then we could say all of the the different effects and like biomarkers that spin off of those different options could be different. So keto people. So let's say if, if you're trying to lose weight through keto, you can do it. And, um, some people will argue that it's good for your mental capacity, right? And your energy dump is more consistent and stuff like that. But you were referencing the constant is just Calorie deficit. Yeah, so you see how it always comes back to what is it that the person really wants? What is the end goal? Just like a business. Like if you don't know your purpose of the business, if your goal is to grow followers or just to have a certain impact versus creating revenue, you're going to approach it completely different. Okay, so what if I pose the question that that is my goal is to look good, feel good, and get a little bit more lean, but I want to do it in the most optimal way. I'm going to be strict coach. I'm going to be strict. I'm going to follow the diet, the workout plan, uh, timed eating. What would you advise as the best optimal plan? If someone wants to do it, not just they want all the biomarkers, they want all the nutrients, they want to do it as best as they can for their overall health and longevity. Just your current, where you're at currently right now with your knowledge, what would you advise? I mean, I would push them on it and be like, I don't know what you know. If you know what you're agreeing to (laughs) to say that, (laughs) but let's say they really were that concerned, then of course it's going to be more of those standard answers, right? It's going to be focusing on the leanest types of protein, which are like white fish, cod, tilapia, right? Those are the leanest ones. There's chicken breast, turkey. You know, we have the leanest types of ground beef. I, I still think red meat's perfectly fine, even in the optimal diet. It's got creatine in it. I mean, you can't get enough necessarily by eating red meat, which you ate a lot. Um, but there's still other benefits that come from it. So even in the optimal diet, I'm saying include it one to two times a week. Rest of the time, very, very lean proteins. If you really want to get technical, I wouldn't even have them use any supplements, any protein supplements, because you're going to get more quality from whole foods than you would from supplements. Although I don't feel like it's realistic to say. It's hard. I've heard that the artificial proteins, artificial quote unquote, it's a matter of timing. Like sometimes they break down the molecule to make it absorb quicker than an animal protein, which 
might take longer to get to your muscle. I know some of the protein companies emphasize that, that it's a matter of timing. Yeah, I mean, you just think about the digestion process, right? It's going to take you way longer to digest this 10-ounce steak than it is for you to drink a protein shake. So in that scenario, sure. Um, and that's an interesting question to pose to is I don't necessarily agree that natural is better. Like a lot of us, right, we want to go back to our roots and like the caveman diets and stuff like that. I'm way more inclined to think through scientific like method and testing and making sure there's no long-term uh, negative effects, which is hard to calculate. But just saying natural is better, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Like humans, let's say, could have come up with a magical protein, a powdered protein that covers all bases better than an animal protein. Whether it's out there or not, I don't really know. But it's just... It's interesting to pose the question of natural is natural better than unnatural or are you really just measuring what's optimal for your cells and and the effects of that yeah i mean if you go to optimal right I mean, you start thinking about it and you just want to go natural all whole foods well you're going to be missing out on tons of important vitamins and minerals that you need because you're just not going to get enough from whole foods unless Maybe if you have a personal chef, but still, like omega-3s. You're not going to eat fish every single day. You're not going to have salmon all the time. So you're not going to have enough of those, right? A multivitamin. They're always recommended to have because most of the time, you're just not going to get all the vitamins and minerals from your normal food. Creatine's another one, right? There's so many of these different little supplements that they're, that's why they're called supplements, right? They help complete the optimal diet. Yeah. So, Have you heard of the topsoil issues and where our food uh, supply chains are coming from and how they've been negatively affected over decades. And a lot of our foods aren't as nutrient dense. So spinach, uh, fruits, vegetables. Um, I've, I've heard that a lot of supplementation is necessary now because you could think that you're getting all of these vitamins and nutrients from different products, but the soil is just so depleted that it's not so nutrient dense. Have you heard of any of this stuff? Yeah, you know, I've heard people talk about it. As long as it doesn't deter someone from moving forward, right? Because a lot of times we get so caught up in, if I can't be perfect, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I find my clients, they're always in that mindset. Like, oh man, I couldn't, I couldn't make, you know, all Whole Foods at home today. I had to stop at, the only place near me was McDonald's. I, I forget it. I'm just going to get three cheeseburgers and call it a day, Right. So as long as somebody doesn't let that deter them and say, oh, well, now that vi fruits and vegetables don't have all the nutrients I need, screw it, I'll just eat whatever I want. You know <laughs> no, what I mean? Of like, course not. It's, such, a, it's such an yeah. insignificant difference in my mind that it, I, don't, I, I feel like it's, it might be talked about too much because if right now you're having one serving and you start to have three or four servings of fruits and vegetables in a day, you're going to see some benefits. You're going to have more vitamins and minerals, even if it's less than what it would be if the topsoil was fine. Yeah, I mean, by no means is it, oh, the, the fruits and vegetables aren't as nutrient-dense as they were in the 1800s. Right. Therefore, I'm going to just throw my hands up in the air and I go to McDonald's. nobody takes that. No, that's, that doesn't make sense. Hopefully, any entrepreneur or business person would understand that, Not on that swing. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But interesting nonetheless. So you said earlier the optimal thing you would recommend still are lean meats so even if there's a calorie 
if you're equal or in a slight deficit becoming leaner over time, you still would advise less fatty meats. Do you have any reasoning behind it or is it just what you were taught and your programming or? Yeah, I think it's just the easiest way. So if the person is talking about looking good, right? I think it's the easiest way to manage calories without fighting hunger, right? Cause we go back to that example. I talked about ground beef, like four ounces of the 70% lean, 30% fat ground beef. The one you see in that like tube light container all the time. It's like 320, 360 calories per four ounces, maybe like 12 grams of protein. The exact same ground beef, four ounces, but 99% lean. It's like 130 calories and 22 grams of protein. So we're saving 200 calories, increasing plus nine grams of protein and eating the exact same amount of food. That's like when you figure out, oh, dieting is not about restriction. It's about strategy it's about intention that makes sense so you're sticking with feeling fuller every day through eating leaner meats yeah the actual physical quantity is going to be more so that like just take up more space in your stomach more real estate in your stomach less calories yep so the fat yeah that that's interesting though because then it tells you fat by definition is a very dense energy source you get more energy, even though it's a lesser mass, right? It's like a smaller, let's say if you had a quarter size of fat and a quarter size of just pure calories and like rice or whatever, your body is almost burning that fat at a slower rate, right? Doesn't it get more from it? Even though it might not take up as much real estate in your stomach, it's still more nutrient dense by definition, no? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that that's a true statement for sure. Um, that's interesting. You just got to find, you, you have to have, you can't cut it all the way out, but you don't want to go overboard on it, right? It's about finding that kind of sweet spot, depending on what somebody is after. And, and the reason why I say that about proteins is I think it's very unrealistic for somebody to be able to hit the amount of protein that they need and stay at the right calorie deficit they need to be at mm-hmm. and eat a lot of fatty meat. I don't think they could do it mm-hmm. because imagine four ounces, that's 12 grams of protein. It's 320 calories in. And you do that three times, that's 36 grams of protein. You're at 960 calories. I don't see how that person particularly with no supplements is going to be able to look the way they want to because it's just simple math. Maybe that's my economics degree talking. That makes makes sense though. It's making their life as easiest as possible to meet their goals, choosing a leaner meat, Removing the fact of what's better for your joints, your brain, or those extra effects. If this is your goal, leaner meats are going to help you stay satiated and get there. Yep. And if someone's talking about joint issues, then maybe we shift some of those to some of the fattier type meats, but the good fat, right? I'm talking like salmon, which has the omega-3, 6, 9 type of fat that's going to benefit joints, not just fat for the sake of, you know, tastes really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's move a little bit into actually working out, rest and recovery, what you advise in that realm. So do you usually recommend upper lower body splits? Are you doing the old classic chest and tries or is it still custom tailored to or chest and tries back and buys or is it still custom tailored to what someone's goals are? Custom tailored always. I think if, if it's not, then we're not really clear on what where is it we're trying to end up. Right. Um, but we'll take like an average example. First thing we got to figure out is how many days can you actually work out? 
And how much time do you actually have to do it? You know, it can't be like, I have five minutes a day. I mean, it's better than zero minutes, so they're going to make progress. But there has to be a yeah. somewhat of a limit there. Probably 15 to 20 minutes is probably the minimum. That makes sense. Um, but then you'd have more frequency. So first thing I'm asking is, so how many days can we actually work out? How many days? And if it's three, then... It depends on now, okay, are they beginners? Are they intermediate? Are they more advanced? Because beginners, they can get away with, they pretty much work out and eat protein and they're going to see progress. Like it's really easy. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Like, for me, it's just about making sure they do it. And they don't even have to do it perfect. They just have to do it more than they were doing before and they're going to see a lot of results. So for them, I might say, okay, let's do a full body type of a split, right? Where we're going to work out with compound movements movements that involve multiple muscle groups like a overhead shoulder press a um if they're going to the gym a bench press or a dumbbell press um some type of pulling movement maybe a lat pull down and um, a goblet squat four exercises i'm not about a lot of variety i think variety is the way to make sure you never master something <laughs> interesting and it's consistent with your diet uh, perspective too of just for these programs just keep it simple you can get results with a simple diet and not a bunch of crazy lifts a lot of people talk about how you need to change it up constantly you need to throw different movements and uh, demands at your body mu body's muscles otherwise you won't see results yeah you do not find I, that to be true from I, what you've seen. if somebody's extremely advanced it might apply okay. most of the time though I disagree because, again, I treat it like business. Imagine somebody who wants to be really good at marketing, so they go really hard into marketing one month, and then they really want to do good at sales, and they go really hard into sales the next month, and then they bounce, and they think HR would be fun, and they do that for a month. They end up just being mediocre at all three things, right? They never really can beat that threshold of mastery, and, and I think that's way more important when it comes to an exercise is mastering the movement, making sure you can track that you're actually getting stronger, that you're pushing yourself a little more. And I don't see how you can do that if every single week you see an exercise on Instagram and you're like, I want to try that. I don't, I don't see how that's <laughs> going to help you ever okay. master something. I mean, for scale too, in your business, it would make sense that simpler is better from a, a business standpoint too. It helps um, with the business standpoint, but I have yet to see it affect overall results. The only time is sometimes people like, um, might get lose motivation because mm. they're like, oh, it's the same thing. And then I will just say, um, I've been training for like 12 years and I still do the same group of exercises because these are the best. These are the best exercises. They involve the most muscle groups if you have this amount of time. So we can do variety or you can get, you know, the most efficient results up yeah. to you. But, you know, it's so what do you what do you do? What is your workout plan during the week look like? your muscle groups your splits what is it yeah um it depends on how many days i have right now i'm doing four days of weight training i don't do much cardio if at all um and i will do upper body one day lower body another day and then again upper body and lower body and so on the upper body day um it might include again those big exercises i'll probably start off with doing depends on the main goal right now. I'm trying to increase my strength. So it might be four sets of four to six reps on the bench press, right? It's got to be in that lower rep range. If mm -hmm. you want to work on strength, it's going to have to have a longer rest period. 
And then I'll probably do some type of a vertical pulling movement, which could be like a pull-up, a weighted pull-up. This one I'll go higher reps because I've seen some people when you go really low reps on pull-ups, it just looks terrible. Like, you know, the forms breaks down. It's not good. Your grip gives out. So it'll probably be 10 to 12 reps on pull-ups. Nice. Then we'll go and I'll probably do a horizontal uh, or a vertical pushing motion. So that would be an overhead press. And then I would go and I would do a vertical or a horizontal pulling motion, which would be some type of row, like a barbell row. Keeping Dude, I love how you're thinking about that because I oftentimes think of muscle groups and what you're contracting as always like geometry against gravity. So if you're pushing and you're activating your chest, like you're moving the weight away from you and you're activating the, the chest. If you're doing a pull-up, the lat is what's like underneath that motion. If you're doing a row, you're pulling a certain way and it's activating like the opposite way. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think if you have some type of vertical pushing, some type of vertical uh, pulling, and then a horizontal pushing and a horizontal pulling, if that's all you had time for, you would still be able to build a very strong upper body. Now, you'd miss out on the little groups, right, like the biceps and like the lateral deltoids aren't hit much, you know, some of those uh, different muscle groups. But if we're talking about efficient in a little time period, then th that's the best way to do it. So you know? push, pull, and then... Vertical push, vertical pull, horizontal push, horizontal, horizontal pull. pull. Nice, yeah. nice. I've never heard of that before. That's, that's a good way to put it. And then lower body, you know, the classics. Depends on the person. But for me, I love and have no issues with deadlifting or squatting. Um, there's always a variation for everyone depending on their age and, you know, um, experience level. And so those will make up the main movements in my lower body day and then if i'm focusing on trying to improve my legs then obviously i have to put more sets and work toward them versus another muscle group so do you awesome. think i'm missing out on anything by doing way more rdls than deadlifts because i've found like i just don't really do deadlifts as much anymore on a leg day i'll do like squats split squats um and then to target my hamstrings and glutes i'll kind of just do RDLs and position my hips and knees in different yeah. ways to like target that. But do you, is there any major discrepancy in only doing RDLs and not deadlifts? I mean, is your main goal to try to increase your hamstring and glute size? Then RDLs is great. You know, if you're trying to get overall strength, overall capacity, you know, of weight you can actually move, um, yeah, you'll be missing out on a deadlift, right? Because an RDL, you can't hold the amount of weight you could actually deadlift if. <laughs> so i mean you, you could try but you would you would instantly see your grip would give out instantly yeah. your hamstring might feel like it's gonna just rip in half your back's probably going to round all those th all those things are going to happen so yeah rounding back don't want to do that don't want to form do first right form first. um so what do you think about recovery what's your recovery schedule like do, when you have clients giving you feedback of you know they, they trained they ate x but there's there's a variance in soreness what do you advise for recovery yeah it's also very individualized again just like I, I believe everything is that's why i you know have the business that i do but typically the first two weeks of somebody getting into an actual workout program i always think they go way too hard they're going so sore that hurts to sit on the toilet it hurts to move hurts to breathe hurts to laugh you, you you overdid it you know because no muscle is built in the gym zero 
It's all about if you can recover from it. And so if you don't know that and you forget that and you think I have to kill myself or leave a puddle of sweat behind in order to make any progress, it's just not true, right? And a lot of the mentality is that. So in the first two weeks, I'm taking it easy on them. I'm having them do maybe two sets of an exercise, not even pushing all the way to muscular failure, which is where you can't do any more reps with good form. So I'm, I'm saving some there. I'm giving them extra long rest time, and I'm only having them work out maybe two or three times a week. They'll, they'll message me back and say, this is just too easy. It's like, that's supposed to be. <laughs> we don't want you to die and be overly sore. It's giving us no benefit. We want you to just get used to it and to feel like I can do this. What is happening there when someone's so overly sore? Do you know the, I've heard of lactic acid and I mean, you're tearing your muscles. Can you speak to that more of like biologically what's actually happening while you feel that pain? Yeah. I mean, you know, part of it is the muscle damage that's taking place. There's like three mechanisms for muscle growth to happen. One of them is muscle damage. That's where basically, you know, in a given muscle group, you're stretching it or working it to a point where it simply tears, right? And if you know anything about <laughs> some other thing tearing, it, it does cause little micro tears in there and it causes some type of, of damage. A lot of people also experience, you know, DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness, which is basically where you create these micro, micro tears maybe on Monday, but you really don't start to feel the effects of them until 24 or 48 hours later. And that's that delayed muscle soreness. What's that called happening. again? DOMS, D-O-M-S, or delayed onset I feel, muscle soreness. That's always been the case with me is you, you train hard, you'll feel sore, let's say legs, for example. You'll feel sore 12 to 18 hours later, but I, I don't feel like most sore until after 24 to 30 hours. Yeah. Yeah, so it's that's, normal. That, that's you're, normal. You're experiencing that. I mean... Something else for people to think about, again, this is why it's all individualized, is there's certain muscle groups that, you know, they give you this standard 24 to 48 hours is how long you should wait before you retrain a muscle group. There's some exceptions. Uh, but sometimes you're, you're recovered the next day. So, like, for me, my back recovers super fast, and my legs, they take two or three days to do it. So I'm probably overdoing it a little bit on the legs, and need to give them maybe a little less work in the moment and more recovery, but it's the same thing. So if you're noticing that for legs, but on other muscle groups, you can probably train the other muscle groups more often, but the legs itself, you probably want to give either a little more rest or not push as hard in the session itself so that you can actually, you know, train them two or three times in a week, which is kind of what we're looking for. Got it. What if someone trains a muscle group and the muscle's not sore? We'll oftentimes be like, oh, we need to go hard enough. Or there was no gains made mm -hmm. in that muscle group because there's no soreness. Is that true? Do you know? Yeah, it's not true. Okay. Um, it's a common misconception just because, like I said, there's three mechanisms of muscle growth. One of them is that metabolic damage, that muscle damage that we talked about. That's where you experience soreness. One of the other ones is progressive overload, which simply means that you did more this time than you did last time. You increased the weight, you increased the reps, you increased the sets. So as long as you're doing that, assuming your form, all things are equal, right? Assuming your form is the same, you know you're making progress. You know that you're moving in the right direction and you do not need to be sore in order to be making progress. Okay, And that could be 
your mental capacity on a given day allowed you to push more, you were more hydrated or had more salt or more protein on whatever given day. So the, the Slept better. Pro- yeah, progressive overloading is what's the uh, hypertrophy? People throw that word around. What does that mean in terms of? Yeah, it's a technical term for muscle growth. Okay. Simple. So, yeah, it's uh, they're very interchangeable. People say hypertrophy sometimes makes them sound a bit, I don't know, smarter or more scientific. I've, but just, it, I've it really, heard it thrown around. Yeah, it I'm really like, is just the increase in muscle size, right? So that's um, if someone's goal was to, you know, build muscle, they would say, yeah, I, I want to, you know, I'm working on hypertrophy. Okay. So you said that you are currently training for strength, low reps and strength. Can you speak to the difference in that versus bodybuilders who are doing high rep, high blood flow, building muscle in that way. I mean, your physiques, the outcome is totally different, right? From those two different training methods. Yeah. I've always been curious about people who are, they might not have as much mass, but they could be stronger than a bodybuilder who looks insane, but that's just their goals is to grow in the high rep, Mm -hmm. higher hypertrophy. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. So um, you might think of strength more like a sport right? It's about technique. Um, it includes more than just overall muscle size. It's about technique. Like so many times people don't realize there are so many things involved in proper squat mechanics and proper deadlifts, like just simply, you know, making sure that your feet are spread apart in the right way, that you have the right, your knees are going over your toes in the proper way, that you hip hinging far enough, that you have the mobility there. So all of those things really impact strength. Okay. Also, mentally, getting used to holding a heavier and heavier weight all impacts strength. If, if you're just not even mentally, you'll see some guys, they'll put on way more weight than they could ever squat. They'll just walk it out and they'll hold it for four seconds just to try and train their body mentally to get used to holding this heavier mm. weight. When it comes to hypertrophy, if you're working on bodybuilding, you don't need to do any of that. Bodybuilding is totally different. What you're really focused on there typically is something called volume, which is like the number of hard sets you do in a given week. Hard sets meaning you push an exercise till muscular failure. So if I'm doing bicep curls and the max amount of curls I can do is 10 with 50 pounds, that's my muscular failure number, 10. And so one of the biggest drivers of muscle growth is volume or number of sets in a week typically between 12 to 20 sets is going to be that sweet spot for optimally growing a muscle. And so if you're focused on that, what you're trying to do is get in more and more sets and frequently train the muscle group two, three, four times. While as the strength guy, he's taking way longer rest periods. He doesn't need to work out as often. He's doing things like mentally priming his mind, working on mobility, going over proper technique, totally different are there differences in what's actually happening to the muscle in terms of is there more tearing happening with a bodybuilder doing that than someone who's doing strength training i mean you know there's no well when it comes to building hypertrophy when you're building muscle right like there has to be more of a change more of an adaptation i don't know if there's necessarily more but there's definitely a difference in adaptation right so you can still build tons of muscle with doing this strength training type approach. 
it's just a lot harder to recover from using 90% of your one rep max for two or three reps. You know, you're, you're dying on every single one versus being able to use 65% and still pushing a hard set, but it's just not as taxing on your joints or anything like that. So I would say there's probably more muscle tearing because there's more muscle being built. Um, but both are pretty taxing on the body. Got it. Do you advise a different strategy with like bone density based on age? Cause I know as you get older, you're supposed to do some compound movements that don't just keep muscle mass up, but your bones start to become brittle. Do you ever have clients that are a little bit older? Yeah. I have a couple of clients that are about 60 right now and the main difference isn't so much, well, some exercise variation, right? If they have like, they blew out their knee and their back hurts all the time, you know, programming in a deadlift for them from day one isn't very smart, Mm -hmm. right? So it's about being selective in those exercises. But the main things that I'll do is typically, I'll try and start them off on more machine or body weight based movements. So they get comfortable with the movement. We make sure to give them extra recovery in between because they just don't recover nearly as fast as us um, in terms of both rest time and in terms of days so that they're not they're not working out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They might do Monday, Thursday, Saturday, totally different muscle groups because they can always get to the same place, but it just takes them way longer and they have to put way more effort in. So those are the biggest differences. That makes sense. Um, what about like HGH and TRT stuff? Um, as people are getting older and let's say for a, a male, their testosterone starts to go down a lot. What's your opinion on that? Let's say for treating and supplementing a biological occurrence and for younger people to use it to get advantages and whether it's bodybuilding or just to look good. A lot of people judge out there when you see someone at the gym that you might think is on steroids. Their deltoids look a certain way. They're vascular in a different way. What's your opinion on that stuff? Does it have a place or is it not good? You should keep yeah. it out of your life. Yeah, testosterone replacement therapy, hormone replacement therapy. Um, you know, there's probably, I, I, I never want to say like there's a hard, fast rule, like no one should ever do it. I'm sure there's circumstances where it makes sense, but you know, typically people that have low testosterone are the same people that have excess body fat, never strength train, have low protein, have low muscle mass. And so to me, I'm always like, why were you surprised that you had low testosterone? Like you don't have anything that's going to produce it. So I'm, I'm always advocating there's still so much you can do before you need to turn to those sources to improve testosterone naturally. Um, but before I would turn to any of those sources like i mean in the first year of lifting for most guys they can put on 12 pounds of muscle 12 to 20 pounds that's i mean that's a huge difference people don't realize that's just one year so i think that a lot of times people do that prematurely and they haven't even they say oh i can't build muscles like what you don't eat the right amount of calories, you don't have enough protein, you haven't watched your fats, you don't progressively overload, and you've been choosing the wrong exercises. Like, do all those things first. Mm -hmm. And then if you still feel that way, maybe you can think about it, but there's just a lot more options that I think people know. Do you know the connection between activating certain muscles 
putting on more muscle mass in certain areas and how it actually produces more testosterone like that mechanism do you know any more I mean, about that you know what science like breaking down all the specific science as far as i my understanding of it is that the bigger muscle groups that you work often you know produce more testosterone which is another reason why compound movements make the most sense right you target target the bigger muscle groups like the legs the back the chest the shoulders you know like these bigger muscle groups versus the little tricep or the little bicep that a lot of people go in they haven't been to the gym in forever and the first thing they do is bicep curls i'm always thinking what a missed opportunity because if you were to train your legs which yes. make up two-thirds of your body and then throw in an overhead press i mean you just hit your entire body that's going to produce a lot more testosterone you know and create a lot more muscle damage or progressive overload than it would burning more calories too if you're doing those big compound movements burning more calories too. do you have a favorite muscle that you like to train yeah it's back dude me too really i freaking love back <laughs> it's the best i like to call it that monkey movement just any any sort of like pull up or row i just love the feeling of training back so a lot of people do uh push pull i always do pull push so that's usually my split is i'll do some sort of back and kind of try to target my my traps and rear delts just to get everything kind of set mm -hmm. and tight before i go on a pushing movement i don't that's just it works for me but i yeah i, I think back. it's a great idea i mean a lot of times like when you think about a bench press one of the biggest ways to create stability is by having your your lats tight and down and if you just got used to contracting them on a back exercise it, you'll be in a better position right in order to push more weight from a more stable platform plus there's nothing like that squeeze of the back right yeah it feels so good do you personally i i've heard the difference between of course you want your back straight like your spine kind of set and you don't want to round your back but one of my buddies a couple years ago which i felt helped me was at the end of your row to kind of let your your lats extend a little bit instead of keeping your back so straight when you're just like this at the you get more range of motion yeah the more is that good to let your shoulders not completely round over but just to let your your lats kind of flap open a little bit yeah for most people that don't have any type of injuries it, it's a way of adding more range of motion mm -hmm. right because if you look here my shoulders here versus here i mean it's added inch inch and a half of range of motion which you're going to all feel in the back I, I think the biggest thing that people want to think about when training their back is not staying in the rounded position totally. so when you're doing this you're also thrusting your chest forward at the same time right and so as long as the chest is eventually leading the shoulders then it's it's a good way to add range of motion for sure yeah. what do you think when you see people in the gym where just aesthetically you could tell over the course of their training career they've done so much more chest and forward motion than back motion and their biceps are huge and they're they're walking around a little bit like kind of slunched <laughs> over a lot of people see that what i think about that yeah yeah i just want to help them <laughs> do back exercises yeah. like share with them the joy of training the back because that's how i was when i first started lifting i was just doing all the front exercises and till i started to train back and recognized oh i am those guys you know so yeah i i always just feel like um i just want to help them can you course correct that over time if they more back less front you can kind of even out your posture over time over time 
overtime is the key word. Yeah, that, yeah. Because you have muscles that are way more overactive in the front. Typically, the front deltoids, chest is super tight. So we have to, you know, roll those out and stretch those out in a certain way. And then also, there's just this huge weakness and inactivity with the muscles in the back. Plus habit of walking like this so yeah. there's like a few things but yeah you definitely can can overcome those things it's sure. just over time <laughs> uh have you ever had any big injuries that have set you back where you've literally had to pause your workout routine you know what i tore my mcl um wakeboarding oh, that was one but my mentality and use the same thing with my clients is like never work through an injury but always try to work around it so just because I had this cast on my leg here, I could still work upper body. There's nothing stopping me from doing bench press with one leg off to the side and oh, still no working my arms. And, like, I still could do stuff. I also had a chest injury, and, you know, I, I could still train my back. It, it's just about finding okay, what can I do and focusing on that. And I also found it a cool opportunity because, like, those weaker muscle groups you would normally not train, all of a sudden now get all this attention, and so you actually come back sometimes better coming nice. off the injury. So that's how I always, like, approach it. Yeah, I agree. What did you do to your chest? It was your left pec? Yeah, I just, just tore, you know. The like, corner of it? Yeah, I just – I don't even know entirely what it was, if, if it was the chest or the shoulder, but, you know, basically I was, like uh, – I played volleyball in high school. Me too. Oh, you did too? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was an outside hitter, a lot of swinging. I mean, still have this weird pop in my shoulder every single time. And um, for some reason, just chest was hurting all the time or the shoulder was uncomfortable. And so I was like, okay, no problem. Let's just focus on other exercises. And the normal ones would cause pain. But I'm like, hey, leg extensions, that's good. I can still do calf raises. I can still do leg press, you know. And so you start to build up this database of all things you can do instead of just thinking, hey, I just can't work out for six yeah. weeks. And you come back and you're like, hey, my legs are as strong as they've ever been. My back's as strong as it's ever been. So there's always something you can do. Still no excuses. I Yep. Business, same thing, right? If one revenue stream just dries up, like you're not just going to let yourself go out of business. You're going to create another one. You're going to, you know, you're going to pivot. So For that's, sure. That's I tore the same left pectoral in the corner. It was senior year during volleyball season. Oh, but dang. I did it on my dirt bike. Oh, so. No. I was I didn't even crash, but I, in bench position, basically on the handlebars, and kind of just cased it on the front tire, and just that bench press jerking motion did the labrum in the corner of my pectoral. Oh, labrum's so a bad one. I've done labrums in both my shoulders, Dang. so it's weird. My my shoulders, I'll get to the point where I'll build them up, I'll keep it steady, like isometric movements in the gym, not doing too much weight. Yeah. I can build it up, and there won't be pain. But as soon as, like, with Muay Thai on the bag or any sort of awkward movement, I can kind of do something to it and then feel like I have to build it all the way back up again. And knock on wood, they've been healthy for a while. <laughs> but shoulders are weird. I feel like just genetically, some people's shoulder positions and their how their back and scapulas are kind of set will dictate, like, how prone they are to shoulder injuries. Like, you see some people... Like the Conor McGregor's, where you look at them, like uh, their side, their shoulders are almost the widest part of their body. You, you know what I mean? Like yeah. their, their arms are kind of the biggest part. And with me, it's my torso is much larger than my arms. Just genetically, I, that's how my dad's shape too is. 
uh, yeah, kind of like dinosaur, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, um, your genetics obviously play uh, an impact in that. And there's things you can do to try and increase your shoulder width or whatever somebody was working on. But yeah, like if you have a bigger rib cage, just have a bigger rib cage. Yeah, there's yeah. not anything you can do at that point. But again, it just goes back to like, I, I think I look at life the same way I look at your body. It's just like play, like everyone's dealt a hand and just play the best hand you got. Nice. Play, play your cards. Yeah, I like that. People speak to life being unfair, especially with you see someone who's genetically gifted who can eat anything, doesn't have to work out a lot, and they're just kind of shredded. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like you said, that's just the hand they were dealt. They didn't choose it. We're not chose the family that we're born into. We just kind of get here. And genetics are a huge thing. Yeah, and a lot of times that person also has done a lot of work. I mean, you know, the genetics make it easier. Like, they give them a little bit of an advantage. But, you know, typically it's not like every single part of their body is attributed to genetics. Probably just made it a little easier for them. For sure. So to circle back a little bit more on nutrition with genetics, we spoke about it a little bit earlier. So in the variation in what's best for you, because we, we like to throw around these diet protocols of something that's it's blanketed, right? But really, individuals, I think, react to foods differently. Yeah. And we see that with the, um, what's it called? Like people not being able to eat uh, gluten, the, the gluten phase now, which a lot of people in the beginning were like, oh, you're just kind of jumping on the train. And no, it's there's such a huge majority of the population that's gluten intolerant. And the way you process red meats versus fish versus pork, I think it has a lot to do with our genetics. So like you can have the epigenetics, which will change you in the course of your life, right? And make certain genes active. But let's say your ancestors are from a certain part of the planet where only X types of animals were available to eat. Let's say you've never even seen a cow. Like you're in South America in a village and your genes over thousands of years were built eating specific types of items you are now the, those villages and people living there are actively selecting people that are going to do best with certain foods. So the fruits that are going on the tree, the chickens that are walking around, whether you have goats or whatever your, your food sources are in the area. If you have five kids and four of them just do really well on the food that's in your village. And the, the fifth one, just unfortunately through the genetic variation is constantly sick. Like you, this is the child where you're trying to feed them X, Y, and Z, and they're just not like their brothers and sisters. They just aren't getting the same nutrients. You span that out over thousands of years. There, that's just they're not going to be as many. There's they're not going to be as active in the gene pool in that area. So if you can kind of figure out where your ancestors are from, and I know 23andMe and Ancestry.com do different like testing with what diet is ideal for your genes. I've, I've been thinking about it a little bit recently because that's really interesting to me. The fact that a lot of things should be custom tailored to what your ancestors were eating. Yeah, and I think, you know, those, at least right now, 23andMe, Ancestry, you know, these things that are going to tell you, you know, about where you came from, it's going to give you helpful information, but I just don't think, there's really anything as valuable as just paying attention to 
what foods make you feel good, what foods keep you full, what foods you enjoy, and which ones don't, right? Like, I think science should be used to guide these decisions, but not as the reason for every decision that somebody makes, just because it's a sample size, you know? It's like, there's so much individual variation. And, and if you look, they're not even saying that this worked for everyone in the control group. They're saying that the mean was this, you know, like yeah, yeah, on yeah. average it was this. It's like, okay, so what about all these outliers? You know, if there's all that you could be an outlier. So that's why I think it's important to take the time to, you know, use all the science, use your genetics, understand where you come from, but then just use it to guide you and don't feel like, okay, that's what it has to be. It's like maybe you're not that, maybe you're the outlier. That makes sense for sure. Kind of to see how you feel, how you're reacting to different things. Yeah. The elimination diet. A lot of people do that. Have you heard anything about the carnivore diet as of late? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's, it's not for everyone. I've never done it, but it's cured a lot of people's autoimmune disorders and issues. And it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it always just goes back to what's the reason you're doing it. Right. If you're trying to cure an autoimmune disorder and you found that, you know, these other people who are similar to you, it worked. Why? I don't see any harm in trying it. But for the majority of people that I'm typically working with who want to just lose body fat, feel better, you know, um, that they won't be able to stick to it long term. Yeah. There's nothing but meat. They just won't be able to stick. They'll start to feel really heavy and discomfort and. And, and it's the same thing. I, that's why I believe all diets are the same in terms of body composition changes, you know, losing fat, building muscle. It, it just comes down to now they're cutting out both food groups, you know. Now they're cutting out all kinds of food groups to lower your calories and increase your protein. So Nice. Uh, just a couple more topics I want to get to, one being um, plant versus animal proteins and diets. Just I'm sure you have vegans and vegetarians and whatnot that come your way. What type of programming do you do for them? Do you ever advise like, hey, you actually should be eating meat. It's better for you. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think anyone has to eat meat if, if they're against it. I, I always go back. It, it really is as simple to me when it comes to their goals. They hit calories and protein. So um, they're just going to be using, you know, plant-based type protein. So obviously they have lots of powders. I think chickpeas is a pretty good one. Um, you know, they're just going to be using some of those vegan type sources instead of the normal meat sources, but there's, there's tons of ways to be able to, to get protein. You don't have to have meat, which makes it easier. In my opinion, just to really? be able to get it in. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of options. So you could still service clients and have them meet their goals, even if they're vegetarians or vegans. Yeah. That's exactly. cool. Do you, do you have a personal opinion on what's more optimal for human beings? I mean, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just personally. I do. I think it's, again, so some people in terms of uh, also need to define optimal. For me, optimal is what can you stick with for the longest period of time that's going to produce the results that you're after. That's how I define optimal. So I don't think most people can stick to a plant-based diet for the long period of time yeah. and produce the results they want. I, I just don't. So to me, it's not optimal because what most of the time people feel like is I, if I fall off plant diet, then all is lost. I, I can't do anything else. 
right? So I'm just not going to care. It's the all or nothing mentality that they're falling into again. So have you heard that statistic of how many vegans eat animal products when they're like drunk or intoxicated? <laughs> no, I haven't. It's pretty high. Um, right. I, could, I could probably Google it, but we'll save it for another time. Um, I just know there's a, a large percentage of the vegans when they're sober versus <laughs> when you're intoxicated. I mean, we all will make dumb decisions, but they'll be like, oh, do you know, this cheeseburger's fine for tonight. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And then maybe that throws them off the bandwagon, like you were saying, of oh, now I messed up, super critical of themselves, and That's is there longevity in it? Yeah. So um, I know you defined optimal in the example you just stated as what you could stick to what let, let's switch the definition just for example's sake of what is best biologically for a human body do you have an opinion on on it i don't know if i have a definitive opinion on it i think there's so much individual you know individual variation that to say that the human body needs x when there's so many different types of human bodies where x would cause you know some type of negative effects I think it's just, I don't know, it's too broad of a statement in in my opinion. But I think it's probably the obvious things that most of the time people talk about, right? Which is just focusing on the whole sources, the, the closer it was to, we talk about natural, right? The closer it was to the natural process, typically the better, you know, that's probably what most people will say. But I don't think I have a specific opinion on it. Just because I think there's just too much individual variation. I, <laughs> you, I just, you don't want to piss some people off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I just think there's too much individual variation to really get up here and just definitively say it's it's this. Yeah. So no, that makes sense. There, we're very diverse. I totally get that. And you were talking about that. Getting back to the natural way of eating, and I think animal proteins and products are very nutrient dense, and kind of if you take. Blades of grass and different plants that an animal then consumes, processes the nutrients and packs them away in a nutrient-dense piece of meat. It went through a process of almost developing these different building blocks then that you can benefit off of, right? Just in pure calories, in iron, different nutrients, in red meats, and salmon and whatnot. Like the animal kind of did this magical process that you then get to enjoy and it's more efficient, but that's just my opinion. I mean, I have vegan and plant-based friends. It's totally cool. Like the people that don't want to do harm or kill anything and that's what motivates them. I mean, how can you fault that? Like I, you're, you're a good human being. That's cool. If that's what you're doing. Um, I just couldn't imagine a life where I gave up meat. <laughs> I, I couldn't either. I mean, it would be, it would be difficult to, to be able to do that. But I guess, like I said, individual variation, you just have to pay attention to how these foods make your body respond. You know, if somebody wanted to test out plant-based and they found they felt incredible, way more energy, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean every single person is missing plant-based dieting and that's how they're going to feel way more energy. It just means you're feeling more energy. And so if that's working for you, then awesome, you know. But I, I just think to apply that to the most diverse human population it just it's just too big a stretch for me just do what works for you in the constraints of knowing that 
donuts three times a day is not good. So, like, you still want some sort of parentheses around what we've defined as good. But then there's a lot of wiggle room in there to where yep. custom plans are available. And it just goes back to your goal. Like, yeah. what is it, you know? So, I just pulled up a stat that U.S. obesity prevalence was 42.4% in 2017. And I think it's even a little bit higher now. This is C2C.gov. Of course, this is like a total total epidemic, the the obesity rate in America. I think it, there's so many different factors. The fact that people are sedentary at work, um, the, the high rate of processed oils and fast foods that we're eating, just to tie it back into your programming, just taking in more calories than you're, you're putting out. And not just taking in more calories, but processed oils poor calories, not very nutrient dense, not a lot of whole foods. That's definitely a contributor into, into this statistic. And it's sad because we, we like to talk a lot about drug addicts, right? And we kind of point our fingers at drug addicts. And sometimes I think that we're leaving out the fact that all, a lot of our obese populations are drug addicts, but just with food and it's programmed into us to there's a surplus of calories around everything in the center of a grocery store. Let's just throw it in the cupboards and people are just loading up on this stuff. And everyone's in a, a constant surplus year after year, decade after decade. So you can see the rates in which even on social media now, like Facebook, you, you look into a time capsule of what someone looked like in high school. And then there's that funny cultural joke of like, Oh, the freshman 15 in college and then they get into their young careers and then they're in the workforce and decade after decade, it's just commonplace now where we see people become more overweight over time. And I, I don't think it has to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Of course, our bodies become less efficient at breaking things down, our metabolism and whatnot. But over time, just making consistent, better food choices and exercising routines and whatnot, putting your health first and wellness first, I think we could start to lower this number and then educate people over time to, to kind of help curate it because God, to have half of the population being sick, like obese, I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's so sad. So, I mean, you're directly in this line of work where you're passionately helping people. Do you have an opinion on the statistic for one and then just kind of a a future vision, a goal of how people can can achieve healthier bodies? Yeah, I think part of what got me into this business in the first place was like my Polynesian heritage. I mean, I, I know it's 50% of the U.S. population, but I wonder what it is in the Polynesian population, you know, the mm. Samoans, the, those type of islanders, because I'm sure it's it's got to be 80%. Like it, it's a very high percentage. And it's not just that, you know, it's impacting their, you know, confidence and different things like that, but they're dying early. They're having all of these preventable diseases. Pacific Islander as of 2014. So 62%. 62%. Right? That's gnarly. Yeah. And I'm sure it's, what's that say? As of 2014. 14, yeah. Way I'm higher sure now. it's higher. Um, why is that? Why would you think? It's just the culture, you know, every emotion is associated with food. We celebrate, we eat, we're sad, we eat. 
we're happy, we eat. We're bored, we eat. Interesting. Every emotion has some type of tie into food. And in the Polynesian culture, the Samoan culture specifically, it's it's the most prevalent. Like, that's just where it happens. And, you know, as I've worked with lots of them, because lots of them are business owners and entrepreneurs, it, um, I, I found that when they try to do it on their own, they just, it's too extreme of a jump. You know, they'll go from consuming 10,000 calories over where they should be to trying to cut out all sugar and, you know, eating 500 calories a day. And they'll do great for two weeks, uh, three weeks. And then they'll have a family event come up and bam, they're right back to it. And it's just this perpetual cycle over and over and over and over again. And uh, as part of why I wanted to get into this industry in the first place is, you know, I didn't want to just look at them and, and, you know, criticize what's happening. I want to try to create an impact, make a change and realize that, hey, you don't have to jump from eating out seven times a week to never eating out. You can just eat out three times a week or choose a healthier option at those places. Or, you know, like there's so many other places you can go to to improve. It doesn't involve starving yourself and trying to cut everything out of your diet and just kind of getting into the restrictive binge type of cycle. Because those are very good points. And I mean, it's cool that you're directly connected to your culture in that way that you wanted to help uh, the population, which as of 2014 was 61.6% obese. And I think a lot of people also look at Polynesians and they're like, oh, they're, they're just like big people, like kind of not scary, but on the football field, they would classify them as scary. They're, they're just bigger human beings. Is that ever kind of put up on a pedestal of like, oh yeah, they're, they almost get extra respect or they're told that they have to be big and eat all this, even though it might not be what's healthy for the population. Is that part of the culture to like be a big brute or is it just, is it just an after effect of diet? And it's a good question. I've never really thought about it ever being put up on a pedestal. I mean, I think, I think there's two parts to it, right? There's the genetics, like Polynesian people, like you're going to see a 5'10 guy, he's going to go into the doctor, even if he is healthy, like by all of our standards, the doctor's going to tell him he's overweight, you know, 170 pound Polynesian is not going to exist at 5'11 <laughs> as a male adult, it's not, it like 210, but you know, is going to be more realistic. Is that in terms of like BMI? Because I know that's kind of flawed with your yeah, stature. B- BMI is definitely flawed, but just in terms of, yeah, where, where they think the weight should be at based off the size, I'm just like, there should be, you know, based on genetics, there should be, this is what's average and typical for this race. Yes. But like, have you seen how they're built? Like, it's just yeah, a different it's, game. It's crazy to think of like a... a your skeleton like some people are just bigger frames bigger bones the polynesian people for example and then you add on like we've all seen scans then you add on layers of fat which like looks like excess around so getting to a point where it's not bad to have a big frame and be muscular it's it's bad to have all this excess fat you know Right. right exactly i mean if you looked at their calves you can ask tons of them. They look like they have the biggest calves ever. Never worked out calves once <laughs> in their yeah. whole life. Never once. Yeah. You know? And they look Genetics. like footballs. 
genetics, <laughs> right? So that's so that, I mean that's that's something to think about. But I mean, as far as actually making an impact there, I just think that people need to focus on not making such a big jump. It would be like you being, you know, in all kinds of debt and then you immediately try to cut out every single expense and you start to work out, you know, work 100 hours a week to try and just boost it up. Probably keep it up for a very short period of time and then you're burned out and you're back to your old ways. So, we got to we got to take more incremental steps to be able to get to whatever that end goal is instead of trying to make too big of a jump. I think that will make a much bigger impact in this obesity number than all of these people, you know, recommending or selling these diets of cut all this food out or just eat our food, you know, like some of these diets, I would say, um, where it's just too too restrictive, too extreme. There's no longevity in it because most people won't stick to it, which it's a, it's a two-way question because – do you then advise people to become more disciplined and strict to move towards the center of what we know to be good for you? Or do you rationally come to the conclusion that if we're going to help solve the problem, there needs to be kind of the baby step method. So you're not, you're not on the same team per se as like the David Goggin types where it's just super extreme, like, Go extreme, go all out. And I, th- I think you're right because even though there's some merit and benefit to that mindset, I don't think the majority of people will be able to stick to that level of extreme. So, therefore, it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. I mean, I think David Goggins is going to reach a certain audience. Is it the majority of the audience? I would say no. Right. Because I just don't think there's that many people like him who are going to run when you have a broken leg and just say, hey, this is just pain. Like in the he body. shit himself yeah. and he kept going. Yeah. Like <laughs> who does that? Or if you were to ever arrive at that level, I don't think you go from sitting on your couch seven days a week and just working in your office to going and running when your shins break and you just keep running through it. <laughs> like I just, I just think that's just. Yeah. That's, but there's something that we admire those extremes. Yeah. You know, it's, we don't want to watch a average movie or <laughs> never fun. someone who's in the Olympics is never average. It's humans are, we're interesting. There's such a wide spectrum, but in solving 50% nearly of people by definition, that's a wide spectrum. Therefore a solution is going to have to be kind of all encompassing the David Goggins mentality might not apply to a lot of those folks. They're they're just going to get too discouraged and it's not going to help them. Yep, exactly. They might be in a worse place after trying it than they were before Yeah. because now they've lost hope. They've lost the ability to believe in themselves. And that's what I think a lot of these really short-term, aggressive, extreme fixes lead people to do is they go and try it. They have all this motivation, which is hard to even come to, and then – they realize they can't do it. It's too extreme. They burn out and they blame discipline all the time. I always hear, I just don't have the discipline. If I just had more willpower, more discipline, and I never think discipline is the problem. I think that it's usually the strategy. And if you set up your environment for success, you don't really need to rely on discipline. It's working for you. 
I, I always talk in terms of what's in your kitchen. Like, what's in your kitchen? Yeah, like for business owners, entrepreneurs, they make a million decisions in a day. Probably not actually a million, but tons. I go right, and they suffer from decision fatigue. That's why in the morning you walk by your cake on the counter and be like, "Eh, don't eat it today. I got goals." But by the end of the day, you've made so many different decisions that bar that you had has decreased more and more and more. And it's why at the end of the day, you're like, mm. ah, I'm just going to eat it. So giving yourself the best opportunity to make good decisions is important. Yeah. So that comes down to education, right? And parents taking a lead in their household and choosing to stock their shelves with healthy foods. Like when you go to the grocery store, most of the things in the center aisles you don't really need. Stick to the things that need to be refrigerated on the outsides, the whole foods. Um, I mean, besides the rice, which is in the middle, because that's like a dry product. But I, I think it really starts with parents educating themselves and raising the next generation of kids that are knowledgeable and what's good and not good for them. Yeah, take advantage of our natural tendency to be lazy, right? Make the choices you don't want to make. Like if you know you can't eat just, you know, a certain amount of cake to stay within your goals or whatever it is, well, Make it hard to get to put the cake like at the store. You literally have to get in your car after a long day of work, drive back out to the store, grab it and come home and eat it. Mm -hmm. Like that's a lot of barriers. And that's discipline though, right? I know you, there is a high level of discipline, even like not shopping hungry is important. Um, shop when you've already eaten something. So you, you don't crave anything, but the actions of placing unhealthy foods in your cart and bringing them home that's discipline so you have to have some layer of discipline to not give yourself the opportunity to to cheat a bunch yeah i think if you define discipline as being intentional then yeah definitely but a lot of times people will define discipline as they couldn't stick to this really extreme diet or this really extreme workout program and then they'll say i'm not disciplined and then i'll say i couldn't do that either I wouldn't want to do that either. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that you're not disciplined and that's the reason you're not making progress. The reason is it doesn't fit your, it doesn't fit you. Like it, it's too extreme for where you're at here. They're trying to get you to go to, I don't know, calculus two and we're still yeah. addition subtraction, you know, well, like take some time. What if someone was like cheeseburgers and pizza and dessert? That's what makes me happy. That's my way. Well, how would you advise them? Well, I mean, again, it goes back to, well, what is it that you want? They're intentionally eating those things. Yeah. What is it that you want? Mm. Because I'm not going to give them the illusion or delusion, for that matter, that if they eat those foods only consistently in high amounts, that they're going to make some type of weight loss type progress because it's just not realistic to think that. So So then what do you do with the folks that are obese on their couch that actively... Um, they not only do not have discipline, but they're intentionally not doing what's best for them. So even if you educate someone and they have the capacity to know this apple is better than this cheeseburger every day, and they're just intentionally not making the right choice, I mean, it's kind of a a separate issue. That's more of like a mental health problem, right? Yeah, that's why it always comes down to like, are they even ready or wanting to change? It's like a drug addict. You can't make anybody change that's not willing or wanting to change so if that's not there 
then they'll never work with me in the first place or they'll never even want to make a change. Those people, they have to come to that point on their own uh, where something, maybe it's recognizing that the next time they meet their doctor and they say, hey, you're not going to be, you know, you keep this up, you won't walk your daughter down the aisle. That might motivate somebody to change, right? Or maybe it's, you know, they have their shirt off and they see their wife make this certain look and now they know their wife's no longer attracted to them. That can make someone change. So these painful moments that a lot of times people don't want to experience because who likes to go through pain, those can lead to change. And that's what I always try to tap into psychologically when with working with people. And the whole first, kind of our whole first meeting together is about those things. Like, why not, why not just stay where you're at? Is it that bad? What happens if you never figure this out? You know, and they have to come figure that part out for themselves that it is more painful not to change than it is to change. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And it's a hard question, but I'm going to pose it to you anyway. Um, when we see a lot now in our culture, people are placating towards the obese crowd. We see it in advertising with clothes and models and whatnot. And, by no means that we're not here to make anyone feel bad or I'm not trying to shame anyone. I'm literally just trying to talk open about facts and what, how we interpret them, our perspective. And I think it's a little scary that we're highlighting that certain looks are okay. Like we're not saying to not accept anyone's personality or have love for someone, but to put on a pedestal obesity and being like, plus size and all of that remove the factor of uh, genetic components that might hinder someone from having a normal body mass or a healthy one rather putting that aside i i think it's kind of wrong i mean i want to know what what your thoughts are we know there's certain things to be true what's good for you what's not good for you now that the the teeter-totter is placating more to we can't offend people even if we're slowly killing someone by like letting them know that this is okay i think one one of my one of my good buddies who's a high school history teacher i think they just got a mass email talking about how the california standards they were removing some obesity measures in the youth just kind of removing it with I don't know exactly what their goals are, but instead of having these physical fitness requirements and measurements, so I was like, oh, you know, now oh, so much of our youth is obese. Are we going to look bad as a state? Are our politicians, are they going to be representing a poor, a poor state with this type of young population? Or like, oh, let's just remove some of those measures and then the data will adjust because we just removed some of them. So, I mean, that was a long-winded question, but just what's your overall opinion on placating to things that we know to not be good for you? you I mean, my opinion on that, it's a sensitive issue, right? Like, because uh, I think there has to be a balance where you have self-love no matter how you look, no matter what state your health's in, right? Because we have mental issues that we're dealing with if we're not feeling that way. So there has to be this balance of having self-love, but also, I don't know if the right word is, it's just like not settling 
I just believe every single human being has unlimited potential. Do you think self-love, though, are you loving yourself if you're actively killing yourself slowly? Because you posed the not being able to walk your daughter down the aisle, um, your significant other looking at you in a different way, which is, in my opinion, a biological mechanism of like, they're not choosing to be negative towards you. They're just having a reaction based on, I, I think that's kind of a genetic component of like, well, wait, this, my spouse is doing harm to themselves. Like something's off, you know? It's it's complicated, but you you were mentioning potential. No, I mean, so when I say self love, it, it means to a point where you don't devalue or think you have no value in yourself simply because of your weight or your health predicament. Got right? it. I, I don't think that we should get that, that somebody should ever feel that way because I believe every single person has infinite value, but at the very same time, I believe every single person has infinite potential. And so to settle for anything less than you, what you can be, I mean, I personally can't get behind that movement, you know, of, of, uh, of glorifying that. So it, it's a sensitive issue, but there has to be a balance between knowing that you have value and worth and recognizing that you're not necessarily living to that value or worth if you don't take care of yourself. And for those people that really struggle in that area of like not knowing what to do, you know, I'll, all I say is just try to do a tiny bit better tomorrow than you did today. If you normally have seven cheeseburgers, for example, well, can you try to have six, right? It's not these big jumps, but it's these small incremental improvements that small things make great things come to pass, right? It's just those little things that make a big difference. That was really well said. Um, and it ties into your first pillar of what's your goal. So if, if we're skewing the goals of uh, turning and looking and becoming more obese, if that's seen as just okay, then people's goals are going to be different They're if that's completely normal and no one's being told that way like this is actually not good for you like you're doing harm to yourself people need to have those finish lines kind of defined i think we all need to agree on some sort of finish line where you don't have to be the shredded model on instagram and in the magazines because as we discussed in the beginning that's not necessarily best or healthy for you. But to aim towards the finish line of being healthy and still having brackets around being able to enjoy your life and have a couple drinks here or there or go out and enjoy some fast food, whatever your, your pleasures are, yep. you can still have that be a part of that healthy finish line. But it is important, I think we're on the same page, to define like where we're heading, what what's the goal? Yep, hundred percent. Well, dude, I appreciate you coming on. Where um, where can people find you online? Do you want to plug your Instagram? Yeah, I or mean, Facebook? Instagram is just the Five A Protocol Coach. That's where you'll find me on Facebook. It's just my name, Jordan 
to email Lunga, you just type Jordan TUI, you'll see my face and it'll pop up. <laughs> Jordan sure, TUI. Yeah. I'm sure it'll it'll link there. And uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Okay, cool. So we'll put that in the description as well. But cool. dude, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Thank you very so. much. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, with that being said, you guys, talking goes a long way and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Yeah.